Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wit and Whiskey cast. I'm joined with my co-host, Mark. Meh. He's just having a fabulous day. But uh, we got to keep that energy high because it's our third guest episode ever. Uh, I'd like to it welcome uh, Brian Ibert to the, the uh, cast today. Thank you so much, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, we'll be sipping our favorite brown libations and uh, talking strategy today. Uh, but before we get there, uh, Mark, how was your uh, how was your week? Well, we we won't get into today because that's a whole episode in of itself. If we ever do just ranting and raving and whiskey, we could do today. Uh, no, you know, overall the the week was okay. Uh, you know, everybody and their brothers getting their shots now, which is good. But that means everybody wants to get together for holidays again, and it's like I I like that was the one nice thing about the quarantine. I like being <laughs> by myself. I don't. I don't want to go places. <laughs> but no, you know, we had Easter. We ate way too much. We uh, gave the nieces some presents so they're happy. And, eh, you know, it is what it is. Slowly starting to get warmer. Uh, it snowed this week again. You know, it's only April, but it's still going to snow. But <laughs> they they tell me it may hit 70 this week, and I just I don't know what to do with that information. It's been so long. It's so true. <laughs> what about you? How are things up in the Shire? Uh, things were pretty good up in the Shire. I mean, it was the titular holiday on Sunday. It was it was Bunny Day, so I was very happy. Uh, I got a hold of some chocolate eggs and a chocolate bunny rabbit, uh, so that'll be uh, quite nice to enjoy this week. And uh, other than that, I uh, got some stuff done around the house, got to uh, play some of the new M- Miles Morales Spider Game, which is really, really good, Spider-Man. Spider game. Spider game sounds way more terrifying than Spider Man game. <laughs> how how much um, how much reviewing have you done before we've gone on the air today? I'm just a little curious. Uh, exactly two. Si- it's been a day though. Mark and I have both had a day. It's been a day. Yeah. Uh, but how about you, uh, Brian? How was your week? Uh, it was uh, you know about probably about the same as Mark's Monday. <laughs> um, East, Easter was good though uh, the kids got to run around outside and open up a bunch of candy and then eat all the candy and repeat and uh, so <laughs> so you know like any other day that ends in Y mostly but uh, you know it's I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of this week I guess yes same here um, that I, is an interesting perspective though we don't often have parents on the Witten Whiskey it's true uh, I, I have to apologize in advance, listeners, uh, because I will fade in and out uh, referring to Brian by his name and by his title because uh, it's just too too mu- many years of, of conditioning to always call your sensei sensei. Uh, so uh, Brian is uh, my uh, sensei in martial arts, uh, which we did a really awesome episode on and and love to do another episode in the future. Um, but uh, Rising Phoenix Martial Arts, if you are in the area and want to check out an awesome school. Thanks for the plug. <laughs> that was good. Plug. That was two shameless plugs in one line there. You plugged our incredibly awesome episode from season one, and you plugged the uh, dojo there. That was really good. I'm getting better at marketing. <laughs> You're going to be unstoppable at this rate. <laughs> I, I have plans. It's a multimedia empire. Lex would be proud. He, well, he's here with me. He's sitting here with me, so he's nodding his head. That's very good. <laughs> but before we get into awesome topics this week, uh, Mark, i got to hear about this drink that you're drinking because I did not know this existed. 
Yeah, well, uh, you know, what do the Beatles say? You know, in times of trouble, Mother Mary speaks to me. Well, when I'm stressed, I, I go to Old Faithful. <laughs> so I'm going to Jack Daniels, but me being me, I have to be a little hipster about it. I'm going to Jack Daniels Rye. So still, we're, what, 35 episodes in, we still have not reviewed regular Jack. <laughs> uh, we've done Gentlemen, we've done the Green Label, and now we're doing their White Label, which is uh, Jack Daniels Tennessee Rye. And it's good. It's very good, but it's a uh, much lighter rye, especially compared to, you know, Bullet or you know, even it's a lot smoother than even, like, say, Wild Turkey or something. Because, uh, as you'll discover very quickly, if you get into any of the quote-unquote special editions or, you know, different variations of Jack, they can't make a rye that's just a rye, you know? They can't make a... Sinatra Select, it's just a, a regular whiskey. They can't make a single barrel that's just cast in one barrel. They always do things a little different. So the thing with uh, the Tennessee rye is it is very, very, very light. Um, both light in, uh, not necessarily so much light in color, although it's lighter than the Kinsey we had on a few weeks ago and uh, things like that. But just in taste, when you smell it, it smells almost like bread, which, you know, makes sense. It's rye. That's the main component. <laughs> but when you taste it, the first hint you get, there's no other way to describe it, is a uh, banana. Just what? tastes like banana. Yeah, no, it tastes like banana. And <laughs> that sort of fades away, and then you get the really heavy rye taste, and then that sort of fades away, and then you get the oak taste, and then you get that good solid uh, whiskey burn because it is ninety proof. It's you know it's a proper rye, uh, but it's you know just kind of strange mm. because it, it hits you. And I mean the blend you have seventy percent rye uh, and it's about twenty percent corn and something about ten percent barley. But it just basically starts off as banana bread. Then you get a little taste of wood. Then it burns and then it goes away. It's very fast, very short taste, very short palate. Uh, but it's pretty good and it's only like twenty six, twenty seven dollars a bottle. So, uh, you know, always keep a bottle of it on the shelf. I usually buy a bottle of it when I can find, because for some reason, the stores here in Pennsylvania, they, they come and go with it. They'll have it on the shelf for six months out of the year. Then for six months out of the year, they'll look at you like 12 heads when you ask for it. Huh. So They're like, oh, no, here's Jack Daniels. I'm like, no, the rye, the rye, which I don't understand. They don't do that with um, Wild Turkey. They don't do that with Jim Beam, you know, any of the lesser ryes. They keep them year-round, so... I don't know if Jack does it seasonally. I don't think they do. I couldn't find any evidence online that they do. I think it's just another one of these weird Pennsylvania things. Uh, but it's pretty good if you want a barely above well, one step above well rye. Uh, and if you like Jack, definitely give it a try. And don't let the banana fool you. You know, it's it's different, but it's not bad. Nice. What about you? What are you drinking? Uh, well, I managed to get my hands on a tasting kit uh, for Glen Morangy. It's a, it's a Highland Scotch. And uh, I figured, since we're jumping all over the place and refusing to actually drink uh, Jack's, you know, <laughs> regular black label, just straight up Jack Daniels, I figured I'd go with the, the intro for Glen Morangy and, and try to start at the beginning with one of these <laughs> fair offerings. Uh, so I'm sipping the Glen Morangy 10-year uh, and it's pretty good. Um, for some reason, the tasting kit labels it a bourbon, 
Uh, and I was doing some research before this, and I could not figure out why it was labeled a bourbon, so I may do some more research on the back end. Uh, but it's it's good. Uh, I It doesn't really taste like a scotch. You know, I had uh, Johnny Walker last week, and, and I've done Jane Walker recently. It's been a, a, a scotch-heavy season for me. And, it has. Uh, I, I'm not getting a lot of the smoke. There's none of that peaty nastiness that I don't really enjoy. Uh, so I... It is scotch. I'm not calling it bog water. Um, Write but, this down, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely got notes of, like, citrus and vanilla. There's some honey uh, scents on it. I don't know. It's it's a very different flavor than I've had. It's really good. Um, I did want to read just a really quick clip from their website around their aroma. It says... Imagine yourself in an Italian garden surrounded with mandarin, lemon, apple, pear, and peach trees, their fruit ripening in the sun. And I thought it was just the most hipster thing I'd ever read about a whiskey. Um, (laughs) It it goes on. There's like three paragraphs of just close your eyes and meditate on on your whiskey. Uh, And (laughs) it's pretty, I mean, I love it. Uh, I'm not able to get like a decent... It says it's uh, the the seventy centiliter bottle, which I guess is what's that in freedom units? Uh, I think that's <laughs> I think that's pretty close to a seven hundred mil bottle. Um, I guess it's just shy. It's seven hundred mil, so uh, it is around the forty two dollar mark, uh, which probably would bring it to. Um, forty eight dollars if you're if you're trying to price it around a, a normal seven fifty mil, uh, so that's it's a little bit up there. It's not as uh, crazy expensive as some of the aged ones. It's definitely not up there with the Irishman. It doesn't break our uh, <laughs> it doesn't break our, our high limit yet. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we we had to cut a few episodes off the back end of season two after you bought the Irishman. So you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's pretty damn good. I definitely recommend it to anyone looking for a, a scotch that they they can get into without you know going all the way to Islay. So, I mean, Islay, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce it to be honest. Islay, I think it is. I only regret that we did not do this combo during our pilot because if there ever was the dichotomy between you and I. You're meditating in an Italian villa of mandarins. <laughs> and I'm just going full minion banana. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. Uh, but we do have a third whiskey drinker on we the call do. today. Um, uh, Brian, did you bring something to sip with us? I did indeed. Uh, in fact, I was a little bit concerned when you mentioned Glen Morangy um, because I also brought some Glen Morangy, but thankfully I brought something a little bit different. Amazing. And uh, I I did go and look up how to pronounce it today and actually watched a video of a Scott bartender pronounce it. It is Glen Morangy, like orangey. So uh, I made sure I got that. But I'm drinking the 12-year-old Quinta Ruban, uh, which is a... uh, it is a single malt Scotch whiskey that is then aged in port casks afterwards. Um, and so uh, the Quinta Ruban, uh, actually, I looked this up as well, uh, stems from the Quinta region of Portugal, which is a wine growing region um, where they get the port casks from. And Ruban is a, a Gaelic word, or a Gallic word, I should say, uh, that means ruby. Um, so, kind of a fancy name. Uh, 
combining a couple of different cultures all in one bottle. Um, but it's one of my favorites. Um, and like you said, in terms of getting into scotch, uh, I think it's a good a good one to get in uh, on the ground floor because it's not it's not too burning on the back end. It has a really smooth finish. Uh, you can definitely taste some fruit notes on the back end of it. It's not too sharp coming in, but gives you a nice little mouthfeel on the way in. It's definitely not peaty and smoky like you don't like. Um, <laughs> and, it, I mean, it just it goes down too smoothly, we'll put it that way. Um, but it's one of my favorites. I love the, uh, the double cast kind of one, like uh, the Balvenie does a, a couple of really good ones as well. Um, and but the Glenmorangie G uh, Quinto Raban is probably my favorite. That's awesome. I totally unscripted. We didn't realize we were drinking the same whiskey today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I had known that, I would have went out and I would have bought a bottle. No, I never would have found one in Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck am I kidding? But <laughs> <laughs> um, this bottle is probably along the lines, like you said, uh, high forties. It's not certainly something that if, if, you know, if you're in college and you want to go out and get some scotch, don't buy this because uh, you're wasting it. Save your money. Let me buy it so I can drink it. And then you go get some other junk. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I really enjoyed uh, looking up all of the offerings from uh, Glenn Morangie because there's just so many. And mm. I, I decided to go a little crazy and kind of see, like, okay, what's the, what's the most expensive you can get? And there's uh, definitely a $600 bottle that you can get of Glenmorangie, uh, <laughs> which I will, I will never taste. But it, it's absolutely... Uh, the, I think it's one of the uh, distilleries that we've reviewed that has, like, the most uh, available. Oh, damn, there's, like, there's, like three pages... Never mind. I correct myself. There's definitely thousand dollar bottles of Glen Morangie. Which I mean, this is the point in the show where uh, I mentioned that my last pickup truck that lasted me for four years, I paid twenty nine hundred dollars for. Yeah, uh, <laughs> just you, to put things into perspective. Uh, for that, you could get a uh, a seven fifty mil bottle of the nineteen seventy six. Sure. That's the year I was born, so that that would be a good one for me. That's awesome. Yeah, they have thirty year old thirty year old bottles, and I now understand, uh, you know, the Porsche Cadillac side of whiskeys. Now that I'm looking at this, I mean, the wife was born in '76, but she doesn't drink whiskey. Do you think if I got it for her for her birthday this year, you think she'd be pissed? Um, yes, I do think that. Mar- Maybe don't do that. We'll leave it up to the listeners. We have till June. Write in to the Witten Whiskey Cast at gmail.com. <laughs> Should Mark end his marriage by buying his <laughs> wife a drink she will not enjoy? God almighty. Well, Mark, uh, I, I, I'm eager for the topic, but it looks like we might have some whiskey news. We just have two little quick hits. We don't have any proper whiskey news this week, proper in air quotes, but... Uh, I did think it was important we do a little follow-up. You know, we talked about the ending of the scotch tariffs a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And that's all well and good uh, if you drink scotch, which apparently 66.6% of this show does, <laughs> uh, going by today. Uh, but for those of us that, uh, you know, are sons of the soil and maybe have a little, are a little bit redder around the neck area, 
we like to drink American whiskeys. And interestingly enough, you know, it, it, the article that we talked about a few weeks ago talked about how it was applying to scotches, but I never put two and two together. They only pulled the tariffs off of scotches. Bourbons, ryes, traditional American Tennessee whiskey, all of that still has a tariff. Wait, and we have a tariff on ourselves? Well, the EU, trade to the EU. Ah, okay. Um, so because of that, uh, you know, these uh, sectors of the industry are dying. Um, just since 2018, uh, sales of American-style whiskey in the United Kingdom, which, believe it or not, was actually the fourth largest market for American whiskey, but since uh, 2018, it's fallen 53%. Woof. So not even three full calendar years, and they've lost half the market already. Uh, so because of that, um, you know, uh, the representatives from the industry are trying to meet with the government, trying to meet with President Biden, trying to get him to put pressure on Boris Johnson to say, hey, you know, this is really a double whammy because not only do we still have the taxes, but a major competitor in our market doesn't anymore. And it really kind of is an interesting thing. You know, it's, it's unintended consequences. I was really, you know, super excited when I read that last article because, you know, one, cheaper whiskey, and two, less taxes. It's a win-win, but this really gives you the other side of the coin. This gives you the equal time uh, perspective. So, you know, if you're one of those people that likes to write your congressman, write your congressman. <laughs> Get rid of the tariffs on our whiskey, too. Uh, so that was one of them. And then the other one was a little silly because this week, of course, was April Fool's Day. <laughs> and I often get bitter and, you know, stand on my soapbox and yell that I'm old enough to remember that when Internet April Fool's Day articles were actually funny and believable. Again, nobody believes me because they haven't been funny or believable in a couple hundred years. But I found one that not only was funny, it was believable because it actually is real. Now, Isn't the that West, like the requirement for not being an April Fool's joke? No, no, hear me out on this one. Listen to this. The Westland Distillery, which is in America, it's out west on the West Coast, the Westland, uh, they announced that for April 1st, they were releasing uh, a select number of individual bottles. Now, I could not find an exact number, but all the pictures I found only had three, so I'm guessing it's only three. And they are calling these the inheritance. And the whole gag with these is it's making fun of people that buy super rare limited release whiskeys and then never drink them. <laughs> so their own press release uh, says that the, this is a special collection of whiskeys that is tailor-made for shrewd investors who recognize that whiskey today is far more valuable when left in the bottle to appreciate rather than to be wasted by being poured into a glass. And then their, uh, their head distiller went on to say, it breaks my heart to see rare whiskeys opened and thereby enjoyed, which thus craters its value. For those searching to grow their wealth and their stature, there is no better investment than whiskey. With the prices that are currently being paid for whiskey at auction, we'd be fools not to get in on the game. We're not fools, we're tycoons. Why else would one want to be in the whiskey business? Uh, to run with the joke, the bottles are permanently sealed in a box with plexiglass and wood crating and everything. So aside from taking a Sawzall to them, you're not getting them out. Yeah. 
they come with a set of white gloves, a monocle, and a certificate of authenticity. Uh, so the three bottles were, but the gag with them is they really made these. These are really a thing, and they were putting them up for auction on April 1st with all the money going to the charity, The Big Table, which is helping uh, restaurants and food service people that are obviously suffering during the pandemic. Uh, the auction was taking place on April Fool's Day. Unfortunately, I've spent the last hour looking. I could not find how much they actually sold for. Oh, damn. I wish I knew, but I could not find it. But I thought that was just really clever, having recently actually bought a limited-release bottle that I still haven't opened yet, but I will. Uh, I just thought that was really, really funny, and, and just the press release and the photos and everything that goes with it. Uh, just Google the Westland Inheritance series, and you'll get this big article in Forbes magazine. It's just, it's really funny. It, can we confirm that there's actually whiskey in the bottles? Because that'd be hilarious if the bottle was empty. Uh, I mean, looking at the photos they put out, it's either the best Photoshop job I've ever seen, or there's whiskey in the bottles. <laughs> okay. Now, what that whiskey is, I mean, it could be just, you know, Seagram 7 in it, for all we know. <laughs> but... but Oh, man, that's amazing. So that, that's our whiskey news for this week. Fantastic. So that gets us into our topic. So, uh, so Brian. Hmm. Chess. Indeed. How'd you get into it? Tell us a little bit about this. I was, uh, you know, probably similar to many people's chess stories, if they remember them at all uh, my mother taught me how to play when I was pretty young I think uh, not super young you know but I think I was about 12 and uh, she was playing she used to play correspondence chess with my grandfather uh, and for the young people in the crowd that's when you would write a letter to somebody with pen and paper and you would put it in an envelope and you would mail it to somebody and they would make a move by writing down what the moves were and then mail it back. Um, and I thought it was fascinating seeing what she was doing. So she taught me how to play. And uh, that that year for Christmas, so we're talking uh, 1988, um, she bought me a chessboard, my first chessboard, and uh, proceeded to uh, beat me every single time <laughs> uh, we played um, for years, years and years. Every time we played, she beat me. And uh, it, it was one of my, uh, I guess, my my adulthood culminations, if you will, that uh, I finally beat her in my late teen years and, uh, and have thus been running the table on her since then. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, like most people, I, I got into it just from my, you know, watching my mother play and, and my grandfather and... Uh, Thought it was kind of interesting, and you know, it was different from some of the other games I played with the, you know, the checkers or Monopoly. God save us all! Um, but uh, it was uh, it was fun. It was challenging, and it was it was something that I wasn't really good at right away, and, and that intrigued me. Uh, it was something I wanted to get good at because I I don't like losing. So um, when you lose every single time you start playing, you either give it up or you you just dive right in for it and that's what I did that's fascinating Mark what about you are you a chess player no not not as such um, I mean I 
think I know how to play. I think I remember what most of the pieces do. <laughs> um, I, I, I was never, never very good. Um, I, I have a chess set. I have one of those all in one. It's like chess checkers, backgammon, Chinese checkers, Uno. It's just like a giant box with like 87 <laughs> games in it. Uh, but it's, I've always been intrigued. I mean, I'm a big fan of the website 538.com, which is basically they put um, sports analytics into everything. So they've been using computer simulations to predict elections pretty successfully and whatnot. And they, uh, was it two years ago, I think, was the last World Chess Championship? And they were Mm -hmm. covering that, like, live. They had, like, a live feed of it. And it would just be interesting to go on the website, and the games would go on, like, all day. Like, just Mm -hmm. hours and hours and hours and hours. And I... It just, from a, a spectator's point of view, it just really fascinated me because I don't have the mind power or the patience to do that. I mean, to me, you know, a, a strat- when you say strategy game, I, I'll name five or six board games before I even get to chess, but chess is the OG. I mean, chess and yes. go is where it all started. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember in middle school was the first time I ever came across chess, um, and I, I was in... Uh, a language class that I was just really excelling in with a couple of other friends of mine. And uh, we convinced the teacher that if we could get our work done and our homework done, um, like, before the halfway mark of class, she would just give us passes to go to the library. And so, like, three times a week, we'd end up at the library, and uh, my buddy Misha brought a chessboard. And he, he very, very slowly, over the course of seventh grade, taught me how to play chess, uh, and I, I'm utterly fascinated by the game, but as Mark can attest to, uh, my strategy in any game, board game, video game, uh, I tend to have a bit of a wild card strategy and you need to have a very careful plan with chess and I can't <laughs> do it. Uh, so while I enjoy it, I, I definitely only dabble. Yeah, I mean, by the, the closest thing I think I ever had to a, a proper chess experience was in freshman or sophomore year of high school. My one friend took me to, he was in chess club, our high school had a chess club like most of them do, and he took me to a chess club meeting, and I was just the punching bag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think I lost something <laughs> like 17 or 18 games in the span of one afternoon. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I ever beat my friends in middle school. I mean, we played for two years, basically, and I, I never I never beat either of them. <laughs> um, These are all very common stories. Yeah, it is. It, it's an interesting time to be talking about chess. I feel like it's definitely in the, uh, in the zeitgeist right now with things like the Queen's Gambit, and you know, all of us are kind of stuck in our homes. Um, I never researched the history side of things, but uh, Brian or Mark, did you guys do any uh, any research on the history? I'm I'm curious if you if you guys have anything that kind of fascinates you. Yeah, I mean, I've been you know I've been playing chess actively for 20 years, um, and by actively I mean every day, <laughs> and uh, so you know. The histories, I'm, I'm fascinated by history, you know, uh, much like Mark is, uh, you know, not in a professional sense, uh, more of a, a hobbyist for me. But um, I, chess is such a fascinating game. I think one of the 
One of the fascinating things for me is how little it has changed in its history. Um, going yeah. back, you know, going back to India, um, you know, some of the pieces had changed. You know, obviously, instead of the queen, um, originally the game had a grand vizier, um, which is uh, essentially the king's, uh, you know, right-hand man or uh, essentially Brutus to Caesar, if you will. Um, which is what grand viziers tend to do most of the time is kill the leader and take over their spot. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, instead of uh, knights or horses, they may have had elephants. Um, uh, but the game has changed remarkably little in the time it's been around. In fact, you know, the, probably the most recent change that, that I've found, and I can't remember when this was, but uh, it was... It was to speed up the game, and that was the the invention of the the double pawn move on the initial move of the game. So, uh, for those of the listeners who don't play chess, uh, when you start playing, you've got eight pawns in front on each side, and uh, a, typically a pawn can only move one square forward at a time. They can't go backwards. They can't go side to side, and they can only go one square forward at a time. Um, in order to speed the games up, because uh, many games, I mean, we think these games go long now. Um, many games would go months. You know, somebody would take five hours to make a move. It was just, it was absurd. Even I don't have that kind of patience. Oof. And uh, so they made it so on the initial move, the pawn could actually move two squares at a time. And, and that was revolutionary. I mean, people were, were ready to fight over this because it was such a, a huge change to the game. And, and it was uh, it was not pure. Um, so just, I think that's one of the big historical things for me that just catches me is, is how little it has changed. That's fascinating. No, it really is. Um, it's incredible. You know, when you, you sit and you think about it, like this is a game that literally billions of individuals throughout history have played. Um, and it's, if you study fiction, you know, one of the biggest tropes in fiction is, oh, if that person's smart, we'll have them in a movie or have them in a book playing chess. And, and it's just, it's an easy way for the audience to relate to somebody being, you know, a more logical individual, a more thoughtful individual. But it's because that's been one of the running measures of intelligence for <laughs> several thousand years. It's true. Yeah, and it's uh, it's funny uh, you, you speak of that, and you think about um, one of the things that I look for in in films and television, uh, whenever chess is portrayed, is the both the setup on the board and uh, the terminology that they use to describe it, and uh, almost invariably they get it wrong almost <laughs> every time. And uh, in fact, I I was uh, fortunate slash unfortunate enough to be in a film uh, 18 years ago or so called uh, The Present. Um, and I'm not going to plug it more than that because no one should ever see this film. <laughs> oh, um, come on. <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll, sh- I'll give you guys a copy. But uh, the, the director slash writer slash uh, head uh, character slash producer. Oh, no. Um, uh, I didn't was, know you were in a Tarantino movie. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wish because then I could have died a valiant death. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> but he he was describing some principle and he, he, he described it as the castling principle and talked about how he would trade places with the king and the rook and how uh, how this was the same as like trading places with yourself in time travel. And, and I was like, you know, that, that doesn't work. That's that's not a good analogy. That's that doesn't work at all. <laughs> and uh, of course, he told me that I didn't know what I was talking about. I should shut my mouth and stand over there in the corner on my mark. Um, so, <laughs> um, and it got in the movie, and the movie was terrible. Um, I'm not sure if that one particular analogy would have saved it. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't know, though. That's the problem. We don't. We don't. If only we could go back in time. Alternate timelines. <laughs> if only we could go back in time and castle ourselves. Yeah, ex- oh. Exactly. <laughs> wow, that sounds like a, a veiled euphemism for something else. It does, it really doesn't does. it? <laughs> I'm going to go home and castle myself. <laughs> yeah. I think we just created something new and terrifying. Uh, well, you know... Now the Witten Whiskey is going to get Rule 34. That's good to know. <laughs> oh, God. Is there going to be slash fiction between the two of us? Because I don't know if I'm ready for that. Uh, well, <laughs> listeners, if you've written slash fiction about Mark and I, uh, you can send a link to it to the Witten Whiskey cast at gmail.com, and I'll make sure Mark sees it. <laughs> he will, too. That's, that's the honest to God truth. It is. It is. So get back on topic. <laughs> because this is a fascinating topic for me. I, I've always really appreciated chess, even though I, I just I don't have the mind for it. And uh, Brian, I know you you've done a, a fair amount on the tournament chess scene, both you know you and and your daughter. And, and I'm kind of curious, you know, wh- what's that scene like? What's it like playing in tournament chess? Uh, so it's it's interesting. I played my first tournament twenty years ago. Uh, in Massachusetts, and I played mostly in New England. Um, I haven't had a chance to do any national tournaments yet because um, it's it's expensive. I mean, you know, the nitty gritty of it is is you end up paying a, a good amount of money in both tournament fees and hotel fees to travel somewhere to sit in front of a board for six hours and get a migraine headache and and hope that you beat somebody who's experiencing the same thing. Um, <laughs> And I know that sounds, sounds amazing like to everybody. <laughs> yeah, it kind of, it does. It, it's doing the same thing over and over again until the other guys run out of gas. <laughs> um, it's uh, interesting. You 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 kind of have to have a love for it. Um, and, I mean, it is still male-dominated um, as a sport, you know, and there's always this debate about whether it's a sport or it's a game. Um you know, from my perspective, uh, having both done physical sports and uh, chess, I would consider chess a mental sport. Um, I've sat down at a board for six hours trying to think as hard as I possibly could on how to destroy the person sitting across from me. Uh, if that's not a sport, I don't really know what is. Um, it, it's, it's infuriating and exhilarating uh, at the same time. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to describe it. Usually most tournaments will take place over a couple of days. Um, sometimes you'll have a couple games per day and they have different time, time, um, increments. Uh, the, the times I like to play are the longer ones and they usually run 
you know, anywhere from four to six hours at, at a potential. Um, but they can finish quicker than that, obviously, if you, if you win or lose quickly. Um, it's, uh, it's different. It's, it's kind of like being a traveling salesman. Um, you know, you, you go from city to city, you pack up all your stuff, and usually it's, if you're traveling by yourself or chess tournament, it's just your chess bag and like a bag of, of like two changes of clothes. And, uh, and you go and sit at a table for a while trying to convince somebody else to, to buy your BS. Um, and in this case, your BS is your moves. Um, and if you convince them, then you win. And uh, if you don't convince them, then you go home and you're out both the tournament fee and uh, your hotel fees. And uh, uh, it's a long drive home sometimes uh, when that happens. But uh, it's, it, it is definitely for people who love the game it is not for somebody who just wants to you know play with a buddy you, you've gotta you gotta be all in if you're not all in you shouldn't play in tournaments <laughs> that's fair is the is the like junior league or the the kind of the scene for younger people is that different do they try to kind of keep the energy up there at all yeah it is you know it, it really depends on who runs the tournament um i've i've gone to a few tournaments now so um you had mentioned my daughter my oldest daughter um who's now nine um started coming to tournaments with me when she was six and uh said she wanted to play so i signed her up um and got her into a tournament and uh you know i I taught her the moves early on and and, you know as most six-year-olds learn moves it was kind of like five minutes here and then she said daddy i want to go do something else (laughs) um but you know, she was fascinated enough with it, um, and saw me studying it a lot that she wanted wanted to try it out. And uh, a lot of the tournament directors, uh, the people who run the show, uh, it's it's not really as well run as you might think it would be by seeing something like Queen's Gambit, for example, where that's really, I mean, first it's fiction, but. Um, secondly, it is really, that's upper echelon stuff. That's, that's the professionals. Um, you don't really see that, uh, at the lower levels where I would play or, you know, where the kids would play typically. Um, but there have been a couple of, of well-run tournaments for kids where the, the tournament directors are very friendly. Um, you know, they, they almost, they wear uniforms, if you will. Um, and they go around and they really help the kids and, and they keep them, motivated and um and happy and uh and it's it's really kind of fun you know i i played a couple tournaments with my daughter simultaneously and for me that's difficult because i'm trying to focus on her and focus on my own game and inevitably my game's going to suffer because i i really more worried about what she's going through and that she doesn't wander off after her game and disappear into the hotel somewhere um but uh yeah, it's 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 good. Like a lot of the kids, I mean, you see the same type of reactions though from the kids. You see, you know, just jubilation for for beating somebody they didn't think they were going to be, or you know, just sheer um, heartbreak at, at losing a, a game that they really thought they were going to win. And and you get the same thing, um, I think, in, in traditional sports for kids um, that you'll see in chess is, is that some parents uh, are living vicariously through their children um, and to 
detriment of the child most of the time, I think, um, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, so one of the things I strove to do with my daughter was to say, look, it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't love you more if you win or if you lose. It, it doesn't matter to me. Just go out there and have fun. And the minute it stops being fun, don't come anymore. Because <laughs> I don't want you to do it if you're not going to have a good time. But um, it is a bit different um, to answer your question. Nice. If, if I can, Brian, I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier, because as an outsider, it intrigued me. You mentioned about trying to get the other guy to buy your BS, as you put it. So and this, this is probably a stupid question, but I know, you know very little about the tournament scene. How much of a, for lack of a better term, proper chess match is kind of like a poker game, is bluffing? Like, how much is strategy and how much is, you know misdirection Hmm. um it's it's funny because at the lower levels there's a lot more bluffing uh there's a lot of misdirection um yeah i mean you even take a look at top poker players you know top poker players are, are are talking more about um you know they have a specific strategy and they run with that and there is bluffing but that's kind of part of the strategy um, in chess, when you're at some of the lower levels, uh, you'll find that we, we kind of call it the wish factor. Um, you look at the board and you see a move that looks amazing. If only your opponent doesn't see this amazing response to this, then you could win in three moves. Um, and, and, and that's kind of the wish factor, and that's almost the bluff that's that selling of the BS that at that level, you're kind of hoping that, oh, if I make this move with my queen over here and he makes this, which turns out to be incredibly stupid move, uh, then I can win in three moves. <laughs> and uh, what you find the longer you play is that that does not work at higher levels. Um, it it kind of leaves the game quite a bit um, because uh, for one thing in, in the age of computers, um, those who are serious about playing almost always have a chess engine that they review all their games with. Um, and they start to see moves that have been played thousands to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of times before. And you start to get this muscle memory of position, of, of you know, pawn structure, of, of the way the pieces fit on the board that work together. And you start to see these absurdities that if you make a move, oh, if he makes this terrible move, I'm going to do great. Those are the things that you ultimately, as you get better, have to just throw out. And you say, you know what? I, I can't play I can't play wish chess. I have to say, I'm going to look for the best move that my opponent can play to make me look stupid for making that move. And that's the move that I have to plan that he's going to play. If my move still holds up, then I'm going to play it. If it doesn't I have to make a different move mm. Mm. yeah that makes perfect sense it's harder to do than it is to say yeah that's fair <laughs> oh well yeah <laughs> I can't imagine um, so talking a little bit about the the higher level play and and whatnot do you have some like strategies that you kind of fall back on or that are your personal favorites you know I, I I don't want to give away the kingdom here, but you know, if, <laughs> is there is there anything that you 
tend to play more towards? Uh, I mean, yeah, you know, uh, speaking towards giving away the kingdom, it's it's not my kingdom to give away, so you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> uh, the ground has been well trod before me, and I'm merely uh, putting on my boots and trying to catch up. Um, yeah, I, I tend to go towards the attacking side. I like um, what you would call an open position. So uh, you'll hear people throw out words like a positional player um, or an attacking player, uh, typically. And, and what those boil down to is a, is a positional player is somebody who prefers almost a kind of a locked position, if you will, where where the, the pieces are kind of immobile, there aren't a lot of moves, and almost the idea of you're just squeezing your opponent to death until they only have one good choice to make, and even that choice is not a good choice. Uh-huh. Um, that, while I'm fascinated by it, I'm terrible at it. Um, I am not a positional player. I Anytime I play a positional player, I get frustrated, and, and I end up making stupid mistakes. Um, I am an attacker. Uh, I go for what you would call uh, a gambit, which is typically giving up some material for attacking purposes. Um, I like to play those. I like to play aggressively. I like to have very open lines. Um, when you like to play with your bishops, which tend to have uh, a lot of travel across the board diagonally, um, you like to have open lines for them, like squares that other pieces don't sit on. So I like to clear a lot of space out for those and, and give them a lot of room to play. Um, and I like, I just like attacking. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, I like I like to impose, impose my will on the other player. Um, and it doesn't always work out, uh, but when it does, it's amazing. Um, you know, the feeling you get uh, is just tremendous. I... I remember a tournament I played a few years ago, um, and the rating structure, by the way, is uh, is convoluted. For your listeners, I w- I'll just say that um, they have a rating structure that goes from essentially 150 points all the way up to 3,000 points. You know, um, and uh, so my rating at the time was about oh, 1,300 or something like that, which is you know, it's it's okay. It's not great. The top level players for those people interested are um, usually in the 2700 range. Um, So, and those guys are amazing. Um, But I played against a guy who was uh, about 400 points higher than me, which um, based on the rating system, that person should win at least 75% of the time or more. Um, And I just attacked, attacked, attacked and, uh, and ended up beating him and, was just floored i was i was so flabbergasted that i had beaten somebody so much higher rated than me I, I was like jumping around and telling people who you know people outside of the chess circle they're like i okay that's great good for you i have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> um but you know that kind of thing doesn't happen very often where somebody who is rated 400 points lower than you beat you um because the, the way the rating system works it's designed to um, kind of get your strength currently. And so um, if you're at that strength level, um, usually you're going to win the majority of the time somebody who's at a much lower strength level according to the rating system. 
that's awesome. I I confess myself a little bit surprised, uh, having been across from you in this aspiring ring, and your strategy in the in the ring is not the same as your your strategy on the board. <laughs> uh, it is not. It is not. Um, I I can say uh, my strategy in the sparring ring uh, for martial arts has always been more defensive, uh, mainly because I'm not a big guy, um, as you know. Uh, I'm you know five nine, uh, you know one eighty. I'm not a huge imposing figure and. In my uh, many years of martial arts, uh, I've gone against guys who tend to be 10 years younger than me and a foot taller than me. <laughs> um, and so what happens is is their reach is just ridiculous. And um, so I, I tend to try to pick my targets a little more carefully then mm-hmm. rather than walking into a, a fistful of uh, a fist, I guess, <laughs> a face full of fist. Um, so I am a little bit more laid back and, and reserved in actual physical conflict than I am in across-the-board conflict. That's awesome. The, uh, the last question I actually had written down I thought would be really interesting for all of us because while chess is fascinating, uh, Mark kind of alluded to it that there are many, many other kinds of strategy games so I was curious what other kinds of strategy games uh, you guys play. And I, I'll reserve my picks for the end. <laughs> well, I mean, my favorite is always, I mean, the classic, you know, it's it's kind of poo-pooed in hardcore strategy game circles, but with my background and everything, it's still my favorite. Uh, I love Axis and Allies. <laughs> Fair. You could pick any of its variations. You could pick any of its setups. Um, but to sit there and, you know, try to put into play some of the strategies that as a historian, you know, we're going to be attempted if only this happened or, you know, we're on the drawing board and never happened. You know, this gives you as close as you're going to get the opportunity to be able to run them and see if they work. Uh, so that will forever be my favorite game if I can only find three to five other people to sit down and kill an entire day with me to play it. <laughs> What about you, Brian? What, what other strategy games do you play other than chess? I mean, uh, you know, I love Othello. Um, I think that's a kind of a cl- classic strategy game that, uh, I mean, there's another one that, you know, I was terrible at and that I got fairly good at, but, you know, I hadn't tried to do tournaments, and I just don't think there's that kind of infrastructure for it. Um, Go is another one that I have played, and um, that. That's mind-boggling. Uh, it's very difficult. It's interesting. Um, you know, in this country, I don't think there's enough of uh, infrastructure, again, for it to, you know, challenge my juices the way chess does because I, I would want to compete against other people as I got better. Um, and then, you know, obviously the board games. Uh, you know, I've played many different board games, uh, much as you guys have, uh, with families and friends and, and – uh, and some of the more intricate ones that have come out recently or, you know, in the past 20 years, I should say, uh, are fun. I, I like the game Pandemic uh, and its variants, uh, <laughs> kind of apropos to today, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. um, in, in that you get the chance to, you know, strategize which of the characters you want to be because you each character has a different um, kind of 
set of tools at their disposal and uh, and how you're going to strategize going around the world and, and eradicating the viruses, uh, I find kind of interesting. And that's that's a little bit different as a strategy game because it's a it's a cooperative strategy game as opposed to a competitive strategy game, which I, I think... I think it'd be nice to see more of those co-op type games uh, than just the competitive ones, um, particularly in the in the vein of uh, like party games with multiple people. Um, and then other games like essentially the the classic uh, games of, of lying. You know, they have masquerade and, and things of that sort, where you're basically trying to fool everybody else in in, in your gaming circle that you're somebody you're not. Um, and uh, I always find those kind of fun and interesting uh, to play with other people, just because you, you're trying to you're trying to play the other person, um, like Mark alluded to with the chess, trying to I'm not with the chess, but the poker, trying to you know see what they're going to think and, and, and kind of convince them of something else um, and, and play them. And I think that's kind of kind of fun and interesting. Um, and uh, you know, it reminds me of a, a time. I went to some friend's house and, and there were some new people that I hadn't met over playing some strategy game and I can't remember what it was now. But um, I completely played up my drunkenness to a point where it appeared to everybody that I was about to pass out. I was so off the wall, but I used it to my advantage to actually win the game. So <laughs> um, it, it worked out pretty well. That's fair. Brian, have you ever... Uh played diplomacy because you seem like you'd be pretty good at that i feel like i may have i've at least seen the game i don't know if i played it it might have been one of the games that was available at uh one of our party nights that may have gotten played may have not um it feels like i if i haven't played it i've at least seen it Diplomacy is a lot of fun, but it usually, in my prior gaming groups, was always the game we weren't allowed to play because there usually were ill feelings amongst a few people afterwards. <laughs> yeah. That's the trouble with competitive strategy games because eventually, you know, those juices get flowing into those of us who like to really compete. And two things happen for me in that case. One thing, you just compete, 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 and then you win or you lose, and then you're angry about it. Or more likely, uh, people get so inebriated that they just lose interest in playing halfway through and quit the game, and you're left in the middle of it wondering where everybody went. <laughs> yes, that's fair. My my strategy games all tend to kind of uh, I tend to gravitate towards what I consider like flash paper strategies, where the short game changes every single time, and the long game is really getting to know the people you're playing with. So for me, the perfect game is Dominion, uh, if you guys have ever played it. Um, but the, the whole concept of Dominion is other than the currency and the victory point cards, uh, the, the deck changes every single game, and you build your own personal deck out of what's on the table. And um, I tend to adapt my strategies in the moment, which means I'm a really, really bad chess player. But when it comes to something like Dominion that changes... Uh, and you have to kind of see what's on the board and, and adapt your strategy if it's not working very quickly. Um, you know, Dominion works really well for, for my kind of mindset. And then it, for me, it's all about getting to know the people I'm playing with. So, you know, I, I've got a uh, shout out to my buddy Ryan, who's my Dominion friend. 
and we've been playing Dominion together for years. And for me, it's really fun because I know how, I know how she thinks and I know how she plays. So I can I can play to break my, her out of her rules and see if I can work around them. And it's a lot of fun for me. Um, but the uh, you know the other game that I'm surprised, Mark, that you didn't mention is uh, Dungeons and Dragons. So you can say I don't consider that a strategy game. I think it's definitely a strategy game because, uh, but the strategy is all learning how to play off of the the people that you uh, are playing with, right? Like we've got a great uh, great group, and it's been going on for years. And the strategy for our D and D game is knowing how to. It's improvisational strategy. Right, like I can uh, lay something down that I know another character or another player might react to or pick up in an interesting way. So it's kind of the same strategy as like a lying game takes. Which is kind of funny because in our D&D group, not only is there a player that doesn't pick up on breadcrumbs less than DJ. <laughs> it's true. Uh, <laughs> we had a session, well, I guess it was about a month ago now, where uh, I believe we spent the better part of an hour to an hour and a half going through this big elaborate strategy. I wasn't even there for part of it. I came in on the back end. <laughs> we got two rounds in, and DJ just completely went off the reservation and said, nope, not doing it, not doing it, not doing it. I told you, flash paper strategy. It's a lot of fun. Which was doubly funny because uh, you did end up actually burning down the building we were in. So flash paper was very fitting for that. I suppose. It, it is, yeah. Um, my my party doesn't allow me to cast web anymore. No, just <laughs> no. And you're not allowed to carry rugs with you either. I know the last rug got, uh, got stolen from me and turned into a mimic. So, <laughs> oh damn, was it a mimic the whole time? It uh, probably was, knowing AJ. Yeah. Well, that's or for another day. back in time with the castling principle and changed itself into a mimic. It did, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if, you, if you're ever, you know, having a hard time in life, just castle yourself back. Yeah, just castle yourself. Yeah. That's really, that's really what it comes down to. Well, I feel like I've learned something about chess. This was fascinating. I've so, learned a lot about chess. Yeah. This was really good. So thanks for coming on, Sensei. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always uh, always fun to chat with you guys, and uh, you know, it's amazing to see what comes out of of these conversations. Sometimes <laughs> it is. And uh, we have achieved the trifecta. We we've got all three pieces of the Triforce uh, here in season two. Our first guest was a teetotaler. Our second guest was uh, medically classified as an alcoholic, <laughs> and now we have the happy middle ground. <laughs> so there we go. The, the, we have covered all sides of the coin now. Uh, so good. <laughs> well, so I think that's going to be it for this week. Uh, big thanks uh, not only to Brian for being here, but to everyone out there listening to us. Uh, again, like I said, our numbers are, are going up week after week after week. So big thank you for that. Uh, we're on 22 different apps and platforms and websites and various listening things. 
So if you Google the Wit and Whiskey cast, we are first through about eighth on Google. That's amazing. You will find us. I, I'm and, still um, fascinated that somebody got us on their Roku. Yes, uh, and consistently, there seems to be one Roku download uh, every week going by the insights that I'm pulling off the back end. So, uh, hey, we're on a smart TV somewhere. Someone is bringing us into their living room, and that is both very humbling and very terrifying at the exact same time. It is. So kudos to you, whoever you are. Yeah, if, you, if you're the uh, one who listens to us on the Roku, give us a shout-out. We're, uh, we're on social media, and we've got that email address. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, we are on Instagram and uh, Facebook and Gmail and SoundCloud, and it's all the Wit and Whiskey cast. Uh, no H in Wit. There is an E in Whiskey. Oh, I think got I got it. it that time. You did. Well done. <laughs> 35 episodes. Finally got it. Uh, big shout out to Nuno Henry Silva, as always, for our intro and outro music. We love him. We're going to send him to your SoundCloud like we always do, because unlike our SoundCloud, there is stuff on his. Yes. So check it out and listen to it. It's very good. So, uh, you know, I was, I've was i been thinking about next week. Yeah, it's our pen- you know, penultimate con- season two app. It's the penultimate episode. And, you know, we're basically two full seasons in here. And I realized we have not done a potpourri episode yet. A what? A potpourri. Don't you watch Jeopardy? I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, it's everything. You don't have a topic. It's a little bit of everything. Oh, okay. Uh, So I'm thinking, you know, we can go off and pick two, three, four different things, brief things we all want to yak about next week on anything, as long as we have a whiskey with it. Oh, damn. Oh, that's so many options, Mark. Uh, Part of me wants to do it just to listen to the little hamster in your head die. (laughs) I can only be ADD when people aren't watching. (laughs) You get performance anxiety otherwise. (laughs) I do. (laughs) But yeah, no, that sounds awesome. I have no idea what we're going to call it. Potpourri and whiskey. (laughs) But that just sounds like we're talking about potpourri. Yes, but it's an intellectual <laughs> joke. <laughs> Regardless, <laughs> titles aside, I think that is our. Uh, I think that that's a good good topic for next week, um, and then we'll have a whole week to think of what we're going to do for the big season two finale. There's only two episodes left. How sad is that? Oh man! But but don't worry. I mean, can we, can we do the spoiler alert here? I think we could do the spoiler alert here. Maybe we're going to do a season three. Oh, yeah. We're definitely doing a season three. You aren't getting rid of us that quickly. No. So, spoiler alert, there's going to be a third season. We're not going anywhere. We're just, you know, going to have a little break like we did the last time. Yeah. Some not funny trailers. (laughs) I loved our trailers. They were hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) But, so, yeah. All right. Until next week, I'm Mark Rossetti. I'm DJ Gagnon. And, uh, that's Brian Eipert. Did I say your name right, Brian? Did I butcher your name? You, you actually did. You pronounced it perfectly. <laughs> well, hey, then we have to end on that because that's never going to happen again. So until then, salute. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.